Søren Kierkegaard, Various Readings, Scandinavian Studies and Notes, Volume 6, Number 7, Søren Kierkegaard, by David F. Swenson, University of Minnesota, Editor A. M. Sturdivant, February 1920, Chapter 6, Pages 21 through 27. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fear and Trembling, etc. Fear and Trembling uses the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son. Abraham is not a tragic hero, for he cannot claim, like Jephthah or the Roman consul, a higher ethical justification for his deed. His intention to sacrifice his son has a purely personal motivation, and one which no social ethic can acknowledge. For the highest ethical obligation that his life or the situation reveals is the father's duty of loving his son. Abraham is therefore either a murderer or a hero of faith. The detailed exposition elucidates Abraham's situation dialectically and lyrically, bringing out as problemata the teleological suspension of the ethical, the assumption of an absolute duty toward God, and the purely private character of Abraham's procedure, thus showing the paradoxical and transcendent character of a relation in which the individual, contrary to all rule, is precisely as an individual higher than the community. A number of examples of the tragic hero are delineated to form a background for the exposition. The repetition attacks essentially the same problem, but modernizes the situation. A young man falls in love. He discovers to his surprise and chagrin that he has become a poet and cannot fulfill his engagement to marry the young woman who was so unfortunate as to have awakened the poetic productivity within him. He struggles with himself for a while and finally flees the field without leaving any word of explanation behind. His honor has received a blow and his pride is wounded to the quick but he is not conscious that he could have acted otherwise. In eloquent monologues he voices his despair and his sense of the bitter injustice that life has visited upon him. In his agony he discovers Job, whose plight seems to fit his case precisely. Quote, if Job is a fictitious character, I hereby assume full responsibility for his words. End quote. The story of Job helps him first to give vent to his emotions. Later, it suggests the possibility of a solution, without having any clear idea as to ways and means, and with the probabilities of the case completely against him, he begins to expect a thunderstorm that will clear the air, give him back his honor, and show him that the whole experience is merely a trial. This expectation constitutes his analogy with Abraham and gives him a resemblance to a believer. The actual resolution of his difficulty comes in a somewhat different form, with the news, namely, that his former fiancée has married another, 
This liberates him for a poet's career. The experience was transitory. Its result is a religious awakening, which does not quite break through, but registers itself in a profound but unutterable religious undertone. The author of the book, Constantin Constantius, follows the development of the young man's love affair in the role of a consulting psychologist. He is himself occupied with the problem of a, quote, repetition, end quote, which he interprets ascetically as the problem whether an experience gains or loses an ascetic value by being repeated. He comes to the conclusion, based upon experience, that a satisfactory repetition is altogether impossible and seeks comfort in a cynical self-limitation. The young man of the love affair illustrates the same problem, but in the form of a religious experience. He wins a, quote, repetition, end quote, as a reintegration of his personality and as the restoration of his consciousness to its integrity in a higher form. It is in this latter sense that the concept of repetition becomes the chief subject matter of the book. The essential purport of this concept is the same as the Christian idea of a, quote, new creature, end quote, but viewed as if from afar and with a certain ambiguity, in hints and suggestions, in distant gleams. The alternation between the ascetic and the religious points of view gives occasion for dealing with the category in a variety of moods, mingling just with earnest, in order, says the author, quote, that the heretics may not be able to understand me, end quote. Repetition is described as, quote, the interest of metaphysics, and at the same time, the interest upon which metaphysics makes shipwreck the solution of every ethical view of life. The conditio sine non, the indispensable condition for every dogmatic problem, end quote. The psychological characterization of the concept is given in a beautiful passage, which I shall here quote in extenso. Hope is a new garment, starched and stiff and glittering, but it has never yet been worn, and hence one does not know whether it will fit, or how it may become one. Memory is an old garment, and useless, however beautiful, for it has been outgrown. But the repetition is an imperishable garment, fitting closely and tenderly. It neither flutters too loosely about the person, nor presses the body too close. Hope is a beautiful girl, who slips away through your fingers. Memory is a handsome old lady, never quite serving the purpose of the moment. But the repetition is a beloved wife, of whom you never tire, for it is only the new that tires. The old never tires, and when the mind is engrossed with the old, it is happy. Only he finds the true happiness who refuses to yield to the delusion that the repetition ought to give him something new, for then he will be bored. Hope is a prerogative of youth, and so is memory, but it requires courage to will the repetition. Whoever is content to hope is a coward and whoever is content to remember is a pleasure-seeker, but whoever has the courage to will the repetition is a man.
and the more profoundly he has known how to interpret the repetition to himself the deeper is his manhood but whoever fails to comprehend that life is a repetition and that this constitutes its beauty condemns himself and deserves no better fate than that which will eventually befall him which is to be lost for hope is an alluring fruit that fails to satisfy and memory is a miserable pittance that fails to satisfy but repetition is the daily bread that not only satisfies but blesses when a man has circumnavigated the globe it will appear whether he has the courage to understand that life is a repetition and the enthusiasm to find his happiness therein whoever does not circumnavigate the globe before he begins to live does not begin to live whoever makes the journey but is overtaken by weariness shows that he had a poor constitution but whoever chooses the repetition lives he does not run here and there to catch butterflies like a child nor does he stand on tiptoe to behold the glories of the world for he knows them he does not sit like an old woman at memory's spinning wheel but he wins his way through life calmly and quietly happy in the repetition and what indeed would life be if there were no repetition who could wish to be a tablet on which every moment time writes a new inscription or a mere memorial of the past who could wish to be subject to everything that is new and flighty and to permit his soul ever and again to be engrossed with an ephemeral pleasure if god had not willed the repetition the world would never have come into being for he would have either permitted his fancy to pursue the easy plans of hope or recalled it all and kept it only in the memory but this he did not do and therefore the world stands and stands because it is a repetition in repetition lies the reality and the earnestness of life whoever wills to repeat proves that his earnestness is full-grown and mature End of quotation. in the two volumes above described faith is delineated in some of its more abstract and formal characteristics it is described as it appears in exceptional situations and with a psychological motivation that falls short of the concrete and decisive background which according to the christian teaching it has for every man in the experience of sin the advance to a more concrete treatment is made in the last of the above-mentioned volumes anxiety and the philosophical chips occupies itself with the logic of the same situation that anxiety psychologically describes in the interval between the philosophical chips and its continuation the unscientific postscript kierkegaard produced a new poetico-psychological treatment of the problems already dealt with this resume which seems to have all the lyrical vitality and freshness of his first handling of the subject is called stages on the way of life studies by various authors collected and published by hilarious bookbinder eighteen forty five the volume is divided into three parts corresponding to the three spheres of life which kierkegaard regarded as fundamental the ascetic the ethical and the religious 
The first part is a reminiscent reproduction of a banquet scene, quote, in vino veritas, in wine there is the truth. Five ascetics discourse on the subject of woman. Their speeches invite comparison with the similar discourses of Plato's Symposium, and neither in beauty of form nor in pregnancy of thought do they suffer by the comparison. The second part of the book deals with marriage and its problems from the standpoint of B, the ethicist of either or. To the ascetic proposition put forward in the first part, that the significance of woman culminates in the moment, the ethicist opposes the view that her beauty grows with the years. The ideal resolution with which marriage begins, and by which it is sustained, is eulogized as constituting the true ideality of human life, and the validity of marriage is defended against attacks from both the ascetic and the religious side. The third part, comprising the bulk of the book, is a, quote, psychological experiment, end quote, by Frater Taciturnus, quote, guilty or not guilty, end quote. This is again the story of an unhappy love affair and a broken engagement, presented in the form of a diary. The subject of the experiment is equipped at the outset with a high-minded ethical ascetic view of life, which his experience shatters. In his despair he is made to approach as nearly as possible to the problem of the forgiveness of sin, but without finding rest in a Christian interpretation of himself and his situation. Frater Taciturnus dissects him psychologically and indicates his idiosyncrasies, expounds the tragedy and the comedy of his situation, and points to a view of life, religious in character, and in advance of his own standpoint as a humorist, as being deducible from it all. The sympathetic collision described is brought home to the reader with tremendous force in a beautiful lyrical prose. In Kierkegaard's own view, this book is emotionally the richest of all his writings, but too ideal to become widely popular. Then came the continuation of the philosophical chips with its strange title, Final Unscientific Postscript to the Philosophical Chips a mimic pathetic dialectic composition an existential presentment by johannes climacus eighteen forty six it discusses briefly the objective approaches to christianity through biblical criticism the authority of the church philosophical speculation the evidences of christianity's historical achievements it dismisses all these modes of approach as incommensurable with the problems of Christianity and as tending to subvert its significance. The rest of the book, through 500 pages of dialectic humor, pathos, and irony, is devoted to the elucidation of the following subjective problem. Quote, I, Johannes Climacus, born and brought up here in Copenhagen, now thirty years old, assume that there exists for me, as well as for a servant girl or a professor of philosophy, a highest good. I have heard that Christianity conditions its attainment. I ask the question, how do I enter into relations with Christianity? End quote.
the exposition of this personal question develops a philosophy of religion and incidentally an analysis of the concepts of reality and truth it is here that kierkegaard makes up his final accounting with the hegelian philosophy and with the interpretations of christianity which rest on a hegelian basis the work is a sustained polemic not only against hegelianism but against all system-making in philosophy taking its stand upon an ethico-dynamic conception of reality and emphasizing the categories of existence actuality life over against the subjective thinker quote, the greek philosopher whose life is an artistic embodiment of his thought end quote. it sets by way of contrast the objective thinker quote, the german professor of philosophy who feels bound to explain everything a tout prix absolutely end quote, and delivers him over to a comic interpretation quote, we smile at the life of the cloister and yet no hermit ever lived so unreal a life as is common to-day for the hermit did indeed abstract from the whole world but he did not abstract from himself we know how to describe the fantastic situation of the cloister far from the haunts of men in the solitude of the forests visible in the pale blue of the distant horizon but the fantastic situation of pure thought altogether escapes our attention and yet the pathetic unreality of the solitary monk is much to be preferred to the comic unreality of the pure thinker and the passionate forgetfulness of the hermit which takes the world away from him is far better than the comical distraction of the world historic thinker in which he forgets himself End quote. the unscientific postscript is an extraordinary book its polemic coloring and the tremendous power of its dialectic naturally suggest the simile of the huge battleship with which it has been compared by brandes its easy conversational tone its aptness in anecdote and humorous characterization the playful facility with which it handles the most difficult of abstractions and its ironical self-depreciation mark it as embodying a quite novel species of philosophical writing it is a philosophical introduction to christianity of a most original kind it describes quote, the way from philosophical speculation back to christianity from the profundity of philosophical thought to the simplicity of Christian faith, just as the previous ascetic pseudonyms had described the way from the poetic to the religious, from the interesting to the simple. End quote. Whatever actual significance they may come to have in the world, says Kierkegaard of these works in a personal note affixed to the unscientific postscript, in which note he acknowledges the authorship of the pseudonyms is absolutely not to be found in the making of any new proposal or in exploiting any unheard-of discovery or in beginning any new movement or in taking up any advanced position their significance lies in the precise opposite 
in the renunciation of all claim to significance and in merely attempting to read through again solo at a distance of double reflection the scriptures of our human individual existential relations the old and well-known scripture handed down to us from the fathers if possible reading them through again with increased inwardness of the twenty-one religious discourses issued from time to time under his own name while the above ascetic pseudonyms were being published all but the last three strike the universal religious note i e they attempt to exhaust the possibilities of edification in the religious sphere without drawing upon any of the conceptions peculiar to christianity the last three however run parallel to the exposition of the chips and the postscript and deal in edifying form with the considerations of these works introduced problematically and ascetically the kierkegaardian literature has thus far brought its reader merely to the threshold of the christian view of life marking the end of the first phase of a most unique literary undertaking end of recording scandinavian studies and notes volume six number seven Surin kierkegaard by david f swenson university of minnesota Editor A. M. Sturtevant, February 1920, Chapter 6, pages 21 to 27.